Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, President Museveni extends his more than three-decade rule in Uganda. How should foreign partners rethink their ties to this abusive and anti-democratic regime? And the humanitarian crisis and conflict in Ethiopia requires urgent attention. How do we stop the bloodshed and secure humanitarian access? Plus, we discuss the diplomat's go-to move, the strongly worded statement. Is there a better way to shape positive outcomes in countries of concern? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Long-serving Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni pulled out all the stops to claim his sixth consecutive election win in early January. What does his flawed election win mean for Uganda? Joining me to discuss Uganda and other topics are Deborah Malik, a former U.S. ambassador to Uganda, Maria Burnett, a human rights lawyer and CSIS senior associate, and Michael Mutiaba, a writer on African politics. This is our 10th episode in partnership with African Arguments. For our listeners, African Arguments is a pan-African platform for news, investigation, and opinion. Okay, on 17 January, the Ugandan Electoral Commission announced that Museveni had defeated his opponent, Robert Chagulani, also known as Bobby Wine, 58% to 34%. A Ugandan court has ordered security forces to stop surrounding the home of opposition leader Bobby Wine. The restrictions imposed on the upper country are unlawful. Wine, who rose to prominence singing against nepotism and corruption, has been blocked from leaving the compound since returning from voting on January the 14th. Incumbent President Uweri Museveni was declared the winner of that election. Wine, also known by his birth name Robert Chigalani, rejects the results alleging fraud, which the government denies. Museveni has been in power since 1986 when he seized control of the country. He has used violence, detentions, internet shutdowns, and a host of tricks to ensure that he would have an unfair playing field and remain in power. Maria, you wrote a paper for CSIS in December entitled Repression as Voters Weigh Museveni's 34 Years. Can you tell us a little bit what happened in this election? Does it or does it not fit a pattern of election intimidation and manipulation? What should we understand about what happened in January? Thank you so much, Judd. I think there's absolutely no doubt that what we saw over the last several months in Uganda has fit a pattern only with more ferocity than maybe some past elections in Uganda. But the partisan law enforcement, the brutality, the use of violence, the intimidation of voters, the opposition's lack of fair access to the media, the president's ability to use state institutions, state agencies to control, for example, an outsized portion of media time to campaign throughout the country and face uh, no restrictions while the opposition was facing really merciless repression, arrest and detention under the guise of COVID restrictions, and certainly that's an important factor. But frankly, as we saw in other elections, before it was the use of Uganda's Public Order Management Act, which was used to prevent opposition leaders from meeting even in private homes during the 2016 elections. So absolutely what we saw in the last several months fits a clear pattern of elections where there's really no intention to see anyone else elected but President Museveni. So Michael, where does that put us now in Uganda? Bobby Wine is no longer under house arrest. He's talking about using nonviolent and legal means to contest the election. There's proceedings right now in the court. What do you see as the outlook for Uganda? 
on the surface, it does look like it's back to business as usual, like many people are returning to work. But the, the reality is that there's still a lot of violence that's ongoing. There are still kidnaps of opposition activists that are going on and there's still intimidation, like heavy deployments of security forces. Occasionally, you see choppers flying around and soldiers patrolling the streets. The internet is back, but social media is still inaccessible except through VPN connections. Generally, there is a sense of disappointment with the outcome of the presidential elections, not only the outcome, but the conduct of those elections. So the petition in the Supreme Court is not generating a lot of excitement. A lot of people are very pessimistic that it will change anything because of everything that has happened and also because three previous petitions of the same kind were dismissed by the courts. Michael, I assume you're, you're one of those who are pessimistic about uh, what will happen at the courts. Yes, exactly. Precisely because the independence of the courts is in question. It's very hard to really trust because looking at the setting and everything that has happened, you wouldn't trust judges that have been appointed by the president to actually rule in such a high-profile case in a way that would negate the interests of the president. And not only that, but they're part of this very society where all this violence has been happening. And so they read the news, they're also scared. They're looking at all these things going on. So it's very dangerous to side with the opposition in such a context. So I wouldn't really expect a ruling that would favor the opposition after everything that has happened. Deb, I want you to react to what Marie and Michael has said. And then, of course, you know, every Ugandan I talk to will say the U.S. holds all the cards here. We have this very close relationship with Uganda. U.S. could change the direction of this country. But I would note that I actually think there's been some positive steps on the U.S. government with Ambassador Natalie Brown, who is your successor decided not to observe the election. She went to go talk to Bobby Wine, the Department of State, several U.S. congressional leaders have expressed concern. We're still in the place where Michael and Maria has sort of indicated where Museveni looks set to continue his rule. I'd love to hear your thoughts on where we are, if there's anything to add. But then how should we think about the U.S. relationship with Uganda? Should it change and can it change? I think that it really is a situation where we've been moving in this direction over the last four years. I think 2016 election was also marked by some of the same things that we saw this time around. But, you know, it's very hard to start to recalibrate a relationship without the support of Washington. And given everything that has happened over the last four years related to the last administration, it has made it much more difficult to take a real serious look at what's happening in Uganda. We have a long partnership with the country, and certainly the U.S. is a big actor and an important player on the scene. But we have to also push some of this back onto the Ugandans themselves. We have to work together to try to figure out what the best way forward is. I do hope that uh, we will start to see more use of things like sanctions targeted and also much stronger messaging about how our relationship can't really be business as usual at this point. We do have some standing with the Ugandan people in terms of what we say and do related to the government. But the reality is that a lot of that assistance doesn't go directly to the government. It works through other partners. And so simply by removing that doesn't necessarily mean that Museveni will change behavior or the party will change the way it acts. 
Uganda is located in a very tough neighborhood. And so even though Museveni and his regime have been implicated in uh, making some of the situations in neighboring countries worse in some cases, they are relatively stable compared to other places. And so it becomes a real dilemma for governments for us to figure out how you balance those two pieces. But simply standing up and saying, we have to have regime change is also going to create a dynamic that makes it very difficult for uh, for our embassy, for our mission in Uganda to accomplish the things that we need to accomplish. Symmetry of messaging, not just from folks on the ground like the ambassador, has to also be echoed by serious effort in Washington to make those adjustments. Thanks, Deb. Let me let me see what Maria and Michael think. Maria, you know, listening to. Deb's comments, you know, how do we recalibrate? How far do you think we need to go here? I mean, I think it's high time for some very significant recalibration. And I would argue it needs to happen at the highest levels of the U.S. government. I think Uganda is really the first big test for democracy, specifically in Africa. You know, there are many other challenges across the continent, and there are many other places that warrant significant attention, including Ethiopia and the tragic humanitarian situation there. But Uganda has been an ally to the United States for a very long time. And part of why refiguring the relationship is difficult is because several U.S. administrations have not done enough, in my opinion, to address the ongoing rights abuses and the significant democratic decline. This did not just happen, you know, since President Trump was elected into office. It didn't start happening under the watch of President Obama. There has really been a very clear pattern that President Museveni was taking very calculated steps to ensure that he and his inner circle would remain in power and reap the benefits of that power by making military allegiances that would serve him in good standing and make it very difficult for Western allies to uncouple that relationship. At the same time, that military has been, to a great extent, a very significant factor in undermining democracy at home. I know the arguments around this is a country that is stable in a difficult region, but that stability has come down the barrel of a gun for many years. You know, we see countless times, you know, condemnatory statements issued by the State Department. At the same time, parts of the U.S. military are congratulating the Ugandan military for close working relationships. At times, even specific Ugandan commanders that have been, you know, up for consideration for sanctions. That kind of diplomatic doublespeak must end. Well, we're going to get right into uh, diplomatic doublespeak at the end of our uh, episode today. But I want to pull on something that you said, Maria, which I think is important for our listeners, that President Biden has not talked about just reversing the last four years under President Trump. I mean, he's made the statement a couple of times about focusing on the challenges of today and tomorrow. And what I hear from him is that we are going to rethink the way we've done our partnerships more broadly, you know, over multiple administrations. I agree with you. This is almost the perfect case study to think about that challenge of the trade-offs between security and democracy and governance. Is it a trade-off? I think that's another question. But we'll see in the coming days and weeks, you know, how the administration positions themselves. Michael, any last thoughts on this before we move to the next section? 
yes, I totally agree with Maria that I think there is a, a sort of false opposition that's informing a lot of the donor countries' uh, relations with Uganda. The idea that in as much as Museveni's government is not democratic, at least it's guaranteeing stability. And I think that this kind of logic is failing to appreciate the fact that Museveni's authoritarianism is actually laying the groundwork for future instability. So it's very so much focused on the short term, uh, the kind of stability that we are seeing right now, but it doesn't look at the ways in which actually the ongoing violence and authoritarianism and personalization of power is actually providing all the ingredients that would lead to even much worse chaos, not only in Uganda, but the East African region. Thanks, Michael. Let's move to the next section. The situation in Ethiopia's Tigray region continues to deteriorate. It's engulfing other parts of Ethiopia as well as neighboring countries. There are more than 2 million people displaced, and yet humanitarian agencies can't access them. The reports of human rights abuses are alarming. The Ethiopian Red Cross has warned that 80% of the country's conflict-hit Tigray region is completely cut off from humanitarian aid. The Red Cross estimates that around 3.8 million of the roughly 6 million people there urgently need assistance. Without urgent action, tens of thousands of people could starve to death. It comes three months after Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed sent the army to top of the region's former ruling party, the Tigray People's Liberation Front. Deb, you served as deputy chief of mission, the number two in our embassy in Ethiopia in the late 2000s. Then you were the director for East African Affairs at the State Department. That's where you and I first met. I know that both of us continue to follow Ethiopia closely. And I wanted to get your opinion about how do we get humanitarian access reopened? How do we de-escalate the fighting on the border with Sudan? How do we press the Eritrean troops to depart? Wow, I'm giving you a lot. <laughs> but, you know, what is your thoughts as someone who has been a diplomat for, you know, for a very long time and really knows this region quite well? These kinds of issues, of course, are always very difficult. But I think one of the most critical things that's got to happen is it has to be more than just one or two countries, one or two individuals, one or two organizations uh, delivering the message to the government uh, in Addis. There has to be sort of a unified message. The UN needs to be involved. It needs to be all of the countries, you know, the EU, the US, but most importantly, the African Union as well. And this is where you get into such difficulties with, you know, conflicts, the reluctance sometimes of heads of state or even of the African Union itself to pronounce itself or put pressure on governments or at bad actors, if you will, who are driving conflict in the region. We've seen improvement and change in that regard, but I think there has to be sort of a clear, hopefully coming out of the AU summit as it starts up, that there will be a clear message to Abiy that he needs to first of all, cease and desist and really actually open up those humanitarian corridors. I mean, ultimately, that pressure is what is going to get you uh, to that point. Eritrea is a tougher nut to crack. Um, you know, working with that government is always a challenge. But again, I think this sort of the sheer developing a, a coalition of voices, if you will, that can ratchet up the pressure on, uh, on both sides first for the Eritreans to leave, but also for the government in Addis to open up those humanitarian corridors. It's been unfortunate to watch what's been happening, not just with Tigray, but in Ethiopia over the last couple of years. But, you know, so much promise when uh, the prime minister came in. 
But look, there are a lot of repressed issues that weren't addressed over the course uh, of uh, many, many years in Ethiopia that are now starting to come to the surface. And I would just say, sort of thinking forward, you know, tying this back to our last subject on Uganda, I mean, this is exactly what you want to avoid, is having a situation where a transition or some change comes along without doing it in a managed way. Because then these the fissures and the cracks and the problems that have existed and were never addressed bubble to the surface. I 100% agree with both your analysis, you know, and the policy prescription. It seems to me this has been a lot of demarche by pinprick, right? Each country has sort of on their own made their points to the prime minister, the government, the TPLF, whomever it is. And we haven't had that collective voice. And that's really critical. So, yes, hopefully at the AU. But also right now at the Security Council, the UK has the presidency, the US will have the presidency in March. I mean, we could really underwrite and convene a global consensus on this. It doesn't matter what country you are, whether you're China, Russia, the African members on the Security Council right now, we can all agree that humanitarian access has to be opened up. Like that shouldn't be under debate. And we need to do it with a deafening voice to make our impact. One of the challenges in Ethiopia, but this isn't Ethiopia specific, is just how polarized and polarizing this space is. We just had an event with Congressman Greg Meeks, who's the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, and we invited a journalist, Sadali Lema, to join us. And it was just mayhem on social media with people on all sides upset about who we picked and with a conversation. And it just reminds me, just like the U.S. in this conflict, everyone has their own set of facts and their own opinions. And it's becoming very difficult to sort of break through that. But Maria, I wanted to bring you in because you've been looking at these issues for a very long time when you were at Human Rights Watch. You know how to work in situations where people have experienced significant trauma and tragedy and where both sides, opposing sides, have very strong opinions about what has happened, who is to blame, and how do we move forward. So maybe you can help us think through navigating the space and working towards constructive solutions. Yeah, it's a very complicated issue. And I think it's it's the, the layers of truth that become the challenge. I would argue, first of all, you know, another point about the Ethiopia situation is that there hasn't been internet access in these areas. And so beyond the humanitarian access, just the internet access means that this is a space in which misinformation can breed. And to some extent, it feels almost intentional that misinformation is supposed to breed so as to create more confusion. And I think that that's something that has to be addressed. You know, in looking as well at the U.S. situation, as you mentioned, people talked about, you know, the need for forensic truth, emotional truth, social truth. These are layers that as communities and as cultures, we have to be willing to unpack. And it's why, you know, as a human rights lawyer, I would argue that justice cannot be forsaken for conversations of short-term stability because these cycles of violence repeat themselves. Ultimately, I think it's very, very important for international actors to participate in fact-finding, to come in without all of the challenges of being a resident of a country and look and establish some basic facts, but then there also has to be reconciliation mechanism and justice mechanisms for abuses that take place. We can't simply wash the slate clean and move forward. And it's why it's also important for the U.S. to do its own work in this regard and to reflect on its own lack of accountability for past abuses. Unless the U.S. is willing to open up to fact-finding from U.N. actors in various incidents, it's obviously very easy for other countries to point out that that UN fact-finding mechanisms are only used against weaker countries. And Maria, 
this shouldn't be done in sequence, right? We don't get humanitarian access. And then we start figuring out, you know, whether there's been abuses, right? I mean, there could be a, a shift in emphasis and maybe Debbie, you have thoughts too, but I think people are trying to figure out, you know, what are the steps? And I want to make sure to hear from the both of you about how to do this in an integrated way where we're addressing some of the biggest issues, but not leaving this in the back burner for uh, some future time when people feel it's safe to have these conversations. I don't think there is ever a future time when it's safe. It's always going to be difficult. There's always risk of reprisals. And I think the justice questions have to be fully integrated into the discussions and the mental health questions, right? These are situations that create profound mental trauma for countries. Deb? I would agree completely. You know, the the importance of, of having that independent angle on the investigation is really critical. Obviously, you have to get a ceasefire. You have to be able to get access to begin to actually have any kind of investigation. But it's absolutely important that it not be focused only on trying to identify who did what to whom, but also to create mechanisms whereby those communities that have been fractured and impacted by by this trauma start to have a way to understand how they are going to move towards reconciliation. Because if you ignore that, I mean, so often we focus on cessation of hostilities, ending the conflict in the sense of the hot war, and there's less attention paid to the trauma and the impact and the underlying reasons why there are so many fractures in the community as a result of the violence. You know, I was in Liberia. So, I mean, it's the same kind of thing where you have to have clear mechanisms for reconciliation that over time will help individuals and communities heal. And starting as soon as possible after you get that sort of cessation of active hostilities is absolutely critical to give it the chance of success that it needs. That's really well said. Thank you, Deb. All right, let's move to our final segment. I'm really excited about this conversation. Michael, you wrote a phenomenal piece in African Arguments entitled Uganda, How Donors Can Go Beyond Strongly Worded Statements. And so let's start with what's the problem with a strongly worded statement? What do you recommend Uganda or any countries really foreign partners should be doing to stop cycles of violence and election manipulation? The problem with strongly worded statements is precisely that they have rarely translated into concrete actions. They have rarely gone beyond rhetoric. They have remained largely on paper as mere statements. And so we need to see a translation of these legal proclamations, all these warnings about consequences into concrete actions that can hold the regime accountable. We haven't seen that yet. The reason why donors have adopted that approach is that they have assumed a kind of democratic government that would respond to the kind of warnings they are issuing. But we are dealing with a fundamentally military regime, an autocratic regime, uh, whose logic is very, very different and which is not responding to these things because it does not believe in the kind of values they represent. So I think that there's need to rethink the ways in which donors are looking at the Ugandan government and then to actually translate these warnings about consequences into actual measures. But there's also need to look beyond the images that have been crafted by the government. Uh, it has presented itself to the international community as the host to refugees in the region, as the as the beacon of economic progress, as the guarantor of stability. But a lot of these are profoundly exaggerated, and we need to 
to be able to look beyond these images and to see the reality for what it is and to consider the long-term risk posed by the current system to the long-term stability of the country and the region. So Deb, you've probably spent your whole career issuing strongly worded statements, but I, I know you've done a lot more than that. Um, let me just give you a little praise. You're one of the most thoughtful diplomats I know when it comes to precision of action. And when you and I have engaged, uh, we've of, often argued about outcomes versus symbolism, where I was on the symbolism side and you were on the outcome side. Did you think about what Michael is saying, his piece, you know, and how, how do we think about U.S. responses in a way that addresses these really worrisome developments? Well, first, I want to say, Michael, I really enjoyed reading your piece as I was reading it um, when it first came out. I was, you know, I found myself nodding as I read through and, you know, you made all the right points. And I guess not to blow my own horn, but to state, I think these are all things that we certainly while I was ambassador in Uganda were working to try to do because I understand probably better than, than most that, you know, the value of a statement or the lack thereof, you can certainly find yourself in a situation of, you know, death by a thousand statements, which really don't lack teeth. And so it shows you may be paying attention, but it really doesn't address the frustrations of people who want to see action. And so I think being more judicious with the statements, but absolutely agree, as Michael said, that we have to move to the point of action. I think that there are a lot of us who understand uh, the dynamic that's at play in Uganda, you know, what the NRM actually represents what and who Museveni actually is. Now, sometimes statements are great. Sometimes behind the scenes, quiet diplomacy or pressure that may not be apparent to others is actually useful as well to accomplish short-term goals. But I think it really is about looking at this strategically. What's the longer-term impact of allowing the situation in Uganda continue to churn? It's great to see these strongly worded statements that we've gotten in the last few months about what's happened in Uganda. But unless it comes to making hard choices and making decisions, uh, we tried to initiate after in 2016 a review of our assistance to, to Uganda to look at see what we might do. But, you know, unfortunately, timing with transition and other things, our own transition at the time sort of put that on the back burner despite efforts to do otherwise. I think now we have an opportunity uh, to look seriously at how we put teeth into those statements because, you know, one thing Museveni knows after his many years in power is how to manage the international community, how to manage the Americans. Again, just let me finish by where I started and say, Michael, thank you for your thoughtful piece. We have to look beyond individuals, beyond the short term and beyond rhetoric. And if we can do that in a strategic and thoughtful way, we can help the Ugandans bring about the change that they are seeking. So, Maria, let's talk a little bit about hard decisions. Let's talk a little about putting some teeth into these statements. What, in your view, are the steps that donors should take to affect change in Uganda? And maybe we waited too long to get to this part of the conversation. What kind of change are we even talking about here? I think that's one of the challenges is that it's not very precise about what we're trying to achieve here, you know, how far we're really advocating to go. What are your thoughts? I think the challenge of the strongly worded statement is that it needs to be backed up each time with a plan of action and also a plan for momentum. I think where Museveni is a master is of narrative control. 
And because he has been in power for so many years, he is able to kind of outplay, outwit, and outlast diplomatic engagement on any given specific crisis over time. So their diplomatic demarches that are very strong, they're carefully worded, they come up. But a year later, two years later, when there has been no movement on that issue, it drops to the bottom of the priority list and we see no action. And that's what needs to change. I think sanctions is one tool, not only to sanction specific individuals, but also to show that there are consequences for human rights abuse and that the United States will not work with specific individuals. And we have that a bit through Leahy vetting, but Leahy vetting is not always as well done as we would all hope. And it sometimes has some workarounds. And I think global Magnitsky is a different is a different tool and an important one. Now, the United States has never actually issued Glomag sanctions against a Ugandan military commander while he was in power. And that's what needs to happen. I think it's important also that the U.S. work with the EU on the sanctions issue. The relationships in Somalia are multilateral. The EU and the U.S. work very carefully and closely together in very specific ways in the Somalia mission. They sometimes have lacked that careful coordination and nuance when it comes to domestic Ugandan questions. And I think we need to see that in this case. I would also argue that there needs to be a real reflection on how all of the U.S. development assistance that goes into the country that that diplomats argue is standing by the Ugandan people can be done in ways that doesn't ultimately lead to a blunting of civic engagement, right? I mean, if the United States is stepping in to support the healthcare sector, there also needs to be significant work to support health rights. And that exists and it happens, but it can always be done more and better. So these are important moments, I think, for donors to step into the fray to say that there is a significant corruption problem in Uganda and to ensure that they're supporting civil society groups that are raising these concerns about corruption and about the importance of civic engagement. I think the question is really for Washington is, is there the diplomatic bandwidth to commit to this very difficult and thorny issue that will require a tremendous amount of interagency coordination and a tremendous amount of persistence and momentum over time. This is not going to be a few months of work uh, by the agencies involved, and whoever is carrying it out in Uganda and in dialogue with Museveni is going to be an expert in Ugandan history, well-versed in President Museveni's playbook over time, and be able to stay committed to this issue over time. And I think we haven't seen that level and intensity over time with interagency support backing it up. I think you really covered the waterfront, Maria. I think those were excellent points, both about what we need to do, but about being honest about our capacity and the commitments that we have to make if we want to see them through. Michael, I'm going to give you the final word. Anything that we need to add to this conversation that you want to share in terms of your recommendations or just reactions to what Deb and Maria have said? I think we've said pretty much everything, but the point I wanted to underscore was the uh, issue of long-term thinking that I was uh, explaining more in the article, but I didn't have enough space. Uh, I think that there's still a lot of focus on the recent events, the just concluded elections, but the kind of violence and authoritarianism we are talking about has been happening for the past 35 years. And at the moment, what we see is growing discontent in the population and growing repression from the government. And these two trends are likely to continue for the next years until probably 2026 and beyond. So whatever kind of action needs to be taken needs to be taken urgently 
And I think that it's important to look beyond just this election and beyond even Bobby Wine to look at this uh, long-running popular struggle for change and how it can be helped and how donors can partner with the Ugandan people to bring about uh, change. I think that's exactly the right framing. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Deb. We will see everyone in two weeks. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.